Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate AudioCast Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is Volume 13, Issue Number 1. It happens to correspond with the week of December 19, 2022. So as year 13 begins, let's explore the brain in detail this year. There's so much more to learn about the brain, how it works, how we can strengthen it, protect it, all the way to the ends of our life. So that when we die, whatever the reason is that we do die, it's not the brain that is lost in that process. This week, we're going to talk about neurologic diseases in the microbiome. We're going to talk about limitless, and then we're going to do recipe of the week. The podcast that corresponds with this week is number 36 with Dr. Nancy O'Hara. Dr. O'Hara is the leading expert in the world on basal ganglia encephalitis or otherwise known as pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders. We get into the details of why, for some reason, certain people are prone to developing thunderclap onset neurologic conditions after getting infected with streptococcus or other bacteria, mycobacteria-like organisms. We take a comprehensive look at this disorder and know that it is a conversation that is useful for both the parent and the clinician because we do get deep enough for the clinicians to learn a bunch. Okay, let's move on. This week, we're talking about coronavirus update number 77. In the United States, Omicron is pretty much the only variant that's going around with many subvariants, including the vast majority now being made up of BQ 1.1 at 38% and BQ 0.1 at 31% with some new strains like XBB at 7%. Either way, the new world of Omicron is a constant deck chair shuffle regarding which strain holds court and for how long. It appears that a few months is the max a strain maintains the chairs on the deck and then new guys come to play. China is heading into a massive illness burden, whether we'll know the truth about how much probably not going to happen. But either way, they are going to have a lot of disease over there as they kept locked down for so long. Now they have a very, very, very infectious strain hitting them. So we'll see what happens. And are there more mutations coming out of China, coming back our way, where we have to deal with? But right now, all the variants of concern in the Omicron land are highly infectious, more infectious than any previous variants, but no more morbid, which is great news. We are not getting sick in a more significant way, just a more frequent way. Quick hits. All right, here we go. Number one, more on vaccines in young adults, specifically men from JAMA. Quote, question, what are the frequency, clinical features, and early outcomes associated with myopericarditis after COVID-19 mRNA vaccination in adolescents and young adults? Findings. In this systematic review and meta-analysis of 23 studies, including 854 patients aged 12 to 20 with vaccine-associated myopericarditis, the incidence of myopericarditis was higher in males after the second dose. Although 15.6% of patients percent had left ventricular systolic dysfunction, only 1.3% had severe left ventricular systolic dysfunction, with an injection fraction of less than 35%. Late gadolinium enhancement was found in 87.2% and 23.2% required intensive care unit admission. 
However, no in-hospital mortality was observed, meaning these findings suggest largely favorable outcomes of COVID-19 vaccine-associated myopericarditis in adolescents and young adults. Yasuhara et al. 2022. I'm not too sure how they come up with that conclusion myself, personally. Largely favorable outcomes of COVID-19 vaccine-associated myopericarditis in adults and young adolescents. When you look at the past data that we've seen, there was a 6x or 600% increase in myopericarditis post-vaccine as opposed to post-disease in young adults. So therefore, by definition, I can't even imagine how largely favorable outcomes is the consequence of this article. But the data yet again for me reinforces within our culture and the medical culture that we should be targeting the vaccine with those groups that are at risk and not willy-nilly. I don't think this group has any need to vaccinate based on what I'm learning. Myopericarditis is not a small problem. Myo meaning muscle, pericardium meaning the heart wall, itis meaning inflammation, is significantly debilitating in those who suffer it. We don't know who are more prone to getting myopericarditis post-vaccination other than it's young men. Which young men? can tell you. So therefore, risk, reward, benefit. What is the benefit of the vaccine in young men? Very little. It's not stopping transmission to help the elderly. It's not really stopping transmission to help anyone. So therefore, what's the benefit? I can't find one in this age group. But as always, every decision is up to each person based on their feelings of risk reward. I am just presenting the data and my opinion on the data. Number two. In a large cohort study by Kwan and colleagues, we see a strong association between positional orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, otherwise known as POTS, and SARS-2 infection or vaccination. Infection remains more risky than vaccination. However, it is clear that the mRNA vaccines against SARS-2 did and still will trigger the disorder POTS, Kwan et al. 2022. This data puts more emphasis on the need to understand why some people suffer chronic fatigue or positional orthostatic tachycardia syndrome post-viral illness and to try and change the downstream risks as these viral illnesses are here to stay. As with Guillain-Barre syndrome and other post-viral disorders, vaccines can induce the same issue. But it appears the virus in this case does more to induce this issue than the vaccine. More to learn, more frustration and unknowing. Number three, quote, obesity characterized by chronic low-grade inflammation of the adipose tissue is associated with adverse coronavirus disease 2019 outcomes, COVID-19. Yet, the underlying mechanism is yet unknown. To explore whether severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, otherwise known as SARS-CoV-2, infection of adipose tissue contributes to pathogenesis. We evaluated COVID-19 autopsy cases and deeply profiled the response of adipose tissue to SARS-CoV-2 infection in vitro. In COVID-19 autopsy cases, we identified SARS-CoV-2 RNA in adipocytes with an associated inflammatory infiltrate. We identified two distinct cellular targets of infection, adipocytes and a subset of inflammatory adipose tissue, reticent macrophages. Mature adipocytes were permissive to SARS-CoV-2 infection, although macrophages were abortively infected. SARS-CoV-2 initiated inflammatory responses within both the infected macrophages and bystander preadipocytes. These data suggest that SARS-CoV-2 infection of adipose tissue could contribute to COVID-19 severity through replication of virus within adipocytes and through induction of local and systemic inflammation driven by the infection of adipose tissue resident macrophages. 
end quote. That comes to us from Martinez Cologne at All 2022. We know that obesity is associated with all-cause mortality in humans. COVID is just another in a new edition line of other things, other reasons why being overweight is a net massive negative to health over a continuum. This data set showed that the fat cells or the adipocytes are permissive to getting infected and whatever their polarity is, the macrophage, these cells that are used to engulf and kill different bacteria, viruses, and other chemicals, their polarity can be driven dysfunctionally by the infection. This is a problem. Number four, there's an article in the Atlantic Magazine by Catherine Wu, W-U, called The Year Without Germs. Interesting. Encourage you to give it a read. All right. Let's switch over into neurologic diseases like Parkinson's and depression and the news of how the abnormal microbiome of the gut, the bacterial microbes, have an effect. In the first article from Nature Communications, we see, quote, Parkinson's disease may start in the gut and spread to the brain. To investigate the role of the gut microbiome, we conducted a large-scale study at high taxonomic resolution using uniform standardized methods from start to end. Here, we show that over 30% of species, genes, and pathways tested have altered abundances of in Parkinson's disease, depicting a widespread dysbiosis. Parkinson's disease-associated species form polymicrobial clusters that grow or shrink together, and some compete. Parkinson's disease-associated microbiome is disease-permissive, evidenced by overabundance of pathogens and immunogenic components, dysregulated neuroactive signaling, preponderance of molecules that induce alpha-synuclein pathology, and overproduction of toxicants, with a reduction in inflammatory and neuroprotective limiting the capacity to recover. We validate in humans Parkinson's disease findings that were observed in experimental models. And quote, Wallen et al. 2022. It's fascinating. The authors found that the oral bacteria, Bifidobacterium dentitium, Actinomyces oris, and Streptococcus mutans were overrepresented by six to seven fold. Rosaburi intestinalis and Blautia wexlerae were underrepresented by five to seven fold. The data describes a picture whereby these 30 plus percent of Parkinson's disease associated bacterial species were significantly altered in abundance, leading to a 1 to 7x increasing or decreasing in Parkinson's disease symptoms when compared to control populations based on which bugs were represented. That to me is amazing. Yet again, we're seeing that the symbiotic relationship between humans and the microbes that live within us is not just they live and use whatever we give them for their own benefit. It has a massive pathologic effect for us if we have the wrong bugs. Almost parasitic in nature, but it's not. It's symbiotic because they're supposed to be helping us. It's our lifestyle choices driving the microbes the wrong direction that drives disease. In that same article, Dr. Wallen wrote, alpha-synuclein pathology has been detected in gut in the gut of persons with Parkinson's disease at early stages. And there is evidence from imaging studies that in some cases, pathology may start in the gut and spread to the brain. In mice, it was shown that alpha-synuclein fibrils injected into the gut induce alpha-synuclein pathology, which leads from the gut to the brain. And that vagotomy stops the spread. 
In parallel, large epidemiologic studies have shown that persons who have complete truncal vagotomy decades earlier had substantially reduced incidence of PD later in life. End quote. More amazing data. This bit of evidence is remarkable as we see direct evidence that the vagus nerve, the nerve that travels from your brain to your gut, which mediates all the activities of respiration, cardiac contractility, gut motility, I mean, just an incredibly powerful nerve that is affecting disease. The gut is ground zero as far as all the current data is teaching us. We need to go deeper here. This begins another layer of why these diseases have been so hard to understand and treat because we have potentially been looking at all the wrong places and downstream affected areas instead of the upstream source of the disturbance, treating the pathology when it's too late, not getting it early. I find this article to be unbelievably fascinating. And there is going to be something to be said down the road about this. Maybe vagal nerve stimulators have some effect in reversing this trend by increasing parasympathetic tone, by increasing GI motility. Stuff to be learned. Now let's look at the second paper, Nature Communications. This time the authors are looking at depression and the microbiome of the intestine. Quote, we identify association of 13 microbial taxa, including genera Egerthella, Subdolingranulum, Coprococcus, Salimonis, Lecnocostridium, Hungatella, Ruminococcus, Lacinospare, Eubacterium, and Ruminococcus galvorel, yeah, whatever that one is, and family Ruminococcuses with depressive symptoms. These bacteria are known to be involved in the synthesis of glutamate, butyrate, serotonin, and gamma immunobutyric acid, which are all key neurotransmitters in depression. Our study suggests that the gut microbiome composition may play a key role in depression. End quote. That comes to us from Ra, Rad Yabzadeh, R-A-D-J-A-B-Z-A-D-E-H, et al. 2022. It has long been thought that the gut, brain, and immune connection is the key to neurologic disease in modern society. Now we are getting study after study demonstrating concrete linkage and pathophysiological mechanisms leading to this cause and effect reality. As discussed time and again within these pages, we must take care of intestinal friends through proper lifestyle choices, including movement, nutrition, stress reduction, toxin avoidance. The vagal nerve influence, as I just discussed, is especially interesting as transvagal nerve stimulators could have an effect long-term on reducing vagal dysfunction that could be a part of this issue's well in depression. I pose this question to a friend and here are his thoughts paraphrased. What would be the difference between a vagus nerve that is active and working towards you, relaxed, healthy, and one that is not working? The vagus nerve carries a current bidirectionally and there is an electromagnetic field that follows the current as it travels. The vagus nerve, when firing, is an aggregation of nerve impulses and their associated electromagnetic effects. This nerve always has some current of flow. It's a question of how much. In the research, the vagus nerve, when cut, had three major effects. One, the vagus nerve is intact and not firing much. It could be used by bacteria to climb up into the brain. 
Number two, the vagus nerve is intact, firing often and associated with strong electromagnetic field. Hypothetically, this could interfere with cellular processes of bacteria killing those that try to climb up and get to the brain. Or number three, the vagus nerve is not intact and can't be used by bacteria to climb up to the brain. The middle choice seems to be the best version for a hypothetical solution to this issue. Really interesting conversation. It may be that the treatment for the future using vagal nerve stimulators and neurologic diseases related to dysbiosis is the way of the future. This remains to be seen. Lots to be understood. In an article by Benarock, we see, for several decades, electrophysiology was remote from the concerns of the microbiologists. The recent realization of signaling roles of bacterial membrane potential dynamics has begun to draw attention to researchers to the roles of the membrane potential dynamics in the microbiological phenomenon of interest, many of which are unexplored. For example, it is now conceivable that electrical stimulating signals may mediate host microbiota interactions. We also foresee a future where bacterial cellular behaviors and functions can be controlled using electricity. In a similar manner by which neurons and muscles are controlled, such technologies may offer an electrical approach to treat antimicrobially resistant pathogens. It could also allow precise spatiotemporal control of industrial bioreactors for improved productivity. Development of electrical interfaces to bacteria and electrobacterial hybrid systems would facilitate the convergence of bioelectric synthetic, synthetic biology. Yet, electrophysiology is still largely uncharted territory in microbiology. For this reason, we argue that bacterial electrophysiology approaches hold unrealized promise of making exciting new scientific discoveries and societally valuable technological developments. Quote, end. Benarock, B-E-N-A-R-R-O-C-H at all 2020. Woo, that's a mouthful. Incredible to think that bacteria are affected by our electromagnetic field and vice versa, and that they have the ability to climb up to our brain. Whether that's going to be proven in the long run, I don't know. But boy, the thought process, the hypothetical nature of this, and that that could be the predisposing insult to a lot of our pathological diseases of the brain, mind-blowing. And I am mind-blown. Section 2. Limitless. The new docu-series of the National Geographic Disney Channel with Chris Hemsworth is excellent. Many of the topics discussed here over the years are explored visually for us all to consume over a few episodes. Chris is challenged to put himself beyond his previous limits and beliefs. Where this series takes a turn for the best is the linkage of health and longevity. They explore how pushing oneself to discomfort is actually health-promoting long-term. The science is discussed in parallel to challenge and the mental and physical drama is shown. They cover topics that I love. Fear, cold therapy, heat therapy, fasting, aging, and much more. Dr. Piedetia is involved adding a massive layer of scientific legitimacy to it. Adaption and extremes. What do we know? Well, I wrote about this a while ago. Since the days of the naturalists, Darwin and Lamarck, humans have thought about the changes that occur within mammalian species as they attempt to adapt to the ever-changing environment. Current times are no different. As temperatures and sea levels rise, food is dramatically changed and sedentary attitudes plague humans. 
all mammals have cassettes of genes with the sole purpose of dealing with extremes of all environmental inputs. Some genes encode for stress proteins, like the class of temperature shock proteins, heat and shock proteins. Others encode for adrenal gland cortisol receptors to handle differential physiological and physical stress. Further yet are groups that encode for receptors that sense any physical perturbations. Taken all together, we see pictures of mammals having the ability to change as needed to stress or environmental shifts. If stress or shifts do not occur, then logically there will be no adaptation. Whether this is good or bad is now being understood. Let's look at the hallmark work by Dr. Moshe Schiff. He looked at the response of rat offspring to differential social grooming and subsequent stress responses over time. Animals that were poorly groomed by a mother rat had higher long-term stress responses because of brain stress receptor changes that occurred. This study showed that a baby is primed epigenetically to expect a tough world if his mother was not a loving groomer. Conversely, the groomed offspring had reduced receptors for stress expecting a happier world. Environmental signals as those above can be positive and negative, but they have an effect nonetheless. It is up to us to figure out which inputs are beneficial. When we look at this from the perspective of longevity, there is new research that shows that repair mechanisms are turned on more favorably in the body's acutely stressed bag exercises, heat, cold, and other extreme similar environmental inputs. Stress proteins like the heat and cold shock proteins have the ability to upregulate in the face of extreme exposure to heat and cold, respectively. The benefit of this adaptation is that the mammalian physiology shifts towards a repair and growth state during these exposures. Sauna use, for example, has been looked at physiologically for its benefit in longevity and health. The heat exposure during sauna use turns on insulin-like growth factor 1 and heat shock protein setting up an anabolic, anabolic growth and repair state. This is very beneficial to any animal as it allows for cellular repair and regeneration as well as hypertrophy of muscles. These types of biological responses occur similarly with cold stress. Adaptation is necessary for humans to live and survive the cold winters of the north. Why would this be? Why would a system perform better under these swings in environmental inputs and less well in a euthermic or plateaued state? The answer lies in the history of mammals and the fact that they have always lived in extremes until recent times. Thus, in order to propagate the species, the biological systems were set to handle the swings of environment in a productive way, especially in the growth and repair mechanisms. When we take this theory and apply it to modern times of limited swings in beneficial environmental signals, we have a human species that is not faring as well. This parallels the perfectly with the Hutterite Amish allergy asthma data that showed that humans exposed to animal endotoxin through stool and dust had significantly better functioning immune systems with less allergic disease. The more robust bacteria exposure, the beneficial effects were shown, opposed to our belief that a happy, clean world is better. Following up on this theme, we know that there's a parasite consumption history that has also beneficial effects when the parasite is not a killer or hurtful. There are many types of organisms that have effects that are symbiotic with us that we previously did not understand. The data keeps mounting, and we need to start listening. Otherwise, we will live in an uncomfortable, poorly effect efficacious way. Here are some thoughts. Number one, learn about safe sauna use, sauna therapy, and exercising when hot. Make sure to hydrate frequently as this is the key to avoid overheating and dehydration if you do choose to do these sauna or high heat exercises. Adapt to heat over time. 
Never use the heat exposure for prolonged times until you are heat adapted. Start with short sauna trips, 5 to 10 minutes and increase over time. Much of the current research is recommending 20 to 30 minutes. Young kids are not recommended to do this activity as we don't have any research and we're not quite sure what would happen. Two, avoid ever trying anything extreme without reviewing the risks first. Always employ the buddy system to make sure that a bad outcome can be avoided and if something does happen, you have a way to deal with it. Three, living a little dirtier will really help to prime our immune system and thus mitigate the risks of modern lifestyle-induced disease and allergic and autoimmune varieties. And when I mean dirtier, I mean gardening, digging in the dirt, kids playing outside. I don't mean getting exposed to a virus, having it on your fingers, and then touching your face. Totally different. Number four, challenge yourself in more ways to elaborate more beneficial genes. Do this without worry of others' beliefs and thoughts. Be your best version of yourself. End of the story. There is a recipe of the week this week, Pad Ki Mao or Drunken Noodles. It's a tasty dish with shrimp or chicken as the protein. Spice it with some chili and holy basil for extra flavor. Link is in the newsletter, audiocaster at salisburypediatrics.com. All right, folks. As always, this is a good time to sign off. But before I go, song of the week is The Black Crows Descending. Link is in the podcast. It's a good one. Give it a listen. Hug those kids. Have a great day. Information provided in this newsletter, audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional. It's not used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute development of a provider patient relationship. Have a great day.